Hello and welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is New to Two. Hello, everybody. I'm Brett Stewart. Joining me on this fine evening, Nicole Davis. How are you? I'm good. Uh, I'm tired. I haven't gotten more than five hours of sleep a night every night this week, and I'm starting to kind of question my reality. Um, but that makes this movie more entertaining rather than less, I think. So, Yeah, this was a fascinating movie. Again, New to Two is the opportunity for someone to pick a movie that the other two have not seen before. And you you picked this one, and myself and our other wonderful panelist, David Luzader, hadn't seen it before. David, how are you? Oh, I am exhausted. I've been burying this body all day, digging up this body all day, burying it again. It's just, whew. It's a lot of work, especially mm-hmm. when you're like a man that could be 50 or 90. And I just don't know. <laughs> he was don't know. 78. He was 78 because he died a few years after this movie came out at the age of 81. All right. I was right in the middle there. I'll split the difference. Yeah. This movie is called The Trouble with Harry. It's an Alfred Hitchcock movie. But before we get into it, I do want to mention next week's movie so you can follow along and watch it. This is one of those upcoming weeks that is a opportune time for you to watch along with us. There's no excuse because you pay for Netflix. We all do. We're all part of that empire. And it's Netflix roulette. So we spun a wheel the Netflix gods chose for us. And David, it is called Zoom, came out in 2015, correct? Yes, that is correct. Uh, Zoom 2015, I verified that it is on Netflix because, uh, you know, just want to make sure it wasn't old information. But yeah, starring Alison Pill uh, and Gail Garcia Bernal looks very interesting. Yeah, I'm into it. It's all about like a multiple dimensions and a comic book author and something coming to life. I don't really know. I'm excited, but that's, what we're going to watch next week. This week though, the trouble with Harry came out in 1955. The trouble with Harry is that he's dead. Three different people think they're responsible for his death. And practically everyone in town has a different idea of what should be done with his body. Nicole, uh, how come you picked this particular movie? Uh, this is now for Hitchcock film. I had heard about before, but I had never seen, obviously, hence the reason for this week. And uh, it was just delightful to be introduced to it. So why did you choose to introduce us to it? Well, I mean, we had done a lot of sci-fi. We'd done a lot of modern stuff. It had been a while since we'd done anything old, and I was kind of missing the fun that we had doing The Miracle of Morgan's Creek. So I wanted to go back to that period and it was kind of a toss-up between um this and arsenic and old lace and um we hadn't done a hitchcock yet but i didn't want to do one of his thrillers i wanted to go for something a little different well you wouldn't have been able to do arsenic and old lace anyway because i've seen that movie and was in that play in high school (laughs) well all right then (laughs) And it's interesting you chose this as our introduction to Hitchcock on the show. In fact, our first time we've ever seen a Hitchcock film in either of our two shows over the course of almost three years. And uh, I found it interesting because based on my experience with Hitchcock, which is probably more of like the average person's like, I've seen Psycho, I've seen The Birds. This almost feels off brand (laughs) in a weird way. Well, it was kind of. It was his... 
it was his first of only two comedies out of the 70 movies he directed. Uh, it was this, and then his last movie, Family Plot, was at least partially a comedy. Um, and the, you know, he had been wanting to do something different. The studio, of course, wanted him to do another thriller because they made huge amounts of money. But because he had made huge amounts of money for the studio, they're like, all right, well, you know, we got to keep the guy happy. Let's let him make this thing. We'll give him like a smaller budget and let him do it. And then we'll, we'll hurry up and do something else after. Yeah. Wow. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. This, this, uh, well, I guess, I guess the following thing probably would have been psycho psycho came shortly after this. No psycho wasn't until 1960. I think. Oh, See, I'm, I'm thinking it is 1960, but I'm thinking like five years in normal director times is like one or two movies. But then you said he made 70 movies. And now I'm thinking that maybe he was cranking these things out every three months. It is insane so. that this movie is in bright color. And then Psycho <laughs> is like, it's, that was just, it's just a funny time, like this era in film history, because you'll like see some movies that are like in color and really bright and vivid, but they were still mostly making black and white movies at this time. Yeah. Right. My this was technicolor Vista vision. Yes. Vista vision. You know, my golly G. Yeah. This came out Vista right vision. between, uh, this came out between to catch a thief and the, uh, 56 version of the man who knew too much. Hmm. So, and David, I'm glad you brought up Vision, Vertigo, North by Northwest. This was prime yeah. Hitchcock. Gotcha. Okay. And I'm glad David brought up the Technicolor um, of this film because my golly, it looks beautiful. I have a soft spot for the way that these movies look. And uh, oh, every time they're outside in the woods and they film this in a time that clearly looks like it was... I mean, part of it's not actually in the woods. Part of it's in a school gym. Uh, yeah, but, they're, uh, they're on a soundstage where they had to painstakingly attach these leaves to trees. Right, because yeah. it, because of rain. In fact, rain was all was often so bad that a lot of this movie movie's audio is overdubbed because um, you couldn't hear. Say. Yeah, because right. you couldn't hear the audio they were recording on set. But when they yeah, are for, actually for outside. Yeah, for our listeners, this was set in Vermont, and they originally intended to shoot everything there in this tiny town in Vermont near Stowe. And um, they got some beautiful exterior shots before they started principal photography. And right after they got all the beautiful exterior shots, they had this massive storm. Pretty much all the leaves just kind of went flump onto the ground from the trees. And it wasn't pretty anymore, so they had to move everything inside, which is why some of the, you know, uh, bucolic outdoor spots where, say, they find the body or want to bury the body are very clearly a soundstage. Right. But goodness, the shots that are outside, uh, the, just the color of the trees, and, and this is so bright and vivid and beautiful. And Again, that's something I, I'm not familiar with with Hitchcock films in my previous excursions through his catalog. So that was really fun for me. Uh, and what the question I wanted to start with for you guys is the comedy in this movie is really, really intelligent, in my opinion. It is it's it's a style of dry black comedy that is. I, the best way I could say it is that it's ahead of its time while being very of its time, if that makes any sense. It's I I kind of get what you're going with there because there's some stuff they have to be um, 
I think one of the greatest things about writing in old movies is how uh, circuitous they have to be about things like sex, because there's a lot that you just can't say that this movie does say, I'd like to paint you in the nude, which is actually uh, very risque for the time. Yeah, uh, quite. Yeah, but when she says, you know, I, I, I put this in the slack because I thought just the phrasing of it was, was so hilarious. Uh, I worked myself up to a certain enthusiasm is how she yes. put it. <laughs> yes, talking about her wedding night with Harry. Yes. With she the man, didn't she really didn't... love him, but she worked herself into a certain state of enthusiasm. <laughs> Which is just so great because it says a lot, but it's also like not saying what, you know, what she means, but we all get exactly what she means. Uh, and I, I just love that, like the, this level of writing that had to happen because they're working with such tight censorship where now it's like everybody, you know, it, comedy, I don't want to say comedy's fully devolved, but it's, it, it, you know, you wouldn't have had Van Wilder in 1955. Um, there are still lots of very smart comedies made today that I love, but they're just, just a very different style altogether. So it does like, it does because it kind of taps a little bit more into some modern sensibilities. And also it's a zany movie around a dead body that people, oh man, I mean, we'll, we'll get into all of the, everybody being super casual about murder. Uh, but just how, like how laissez-faire every single person is in this movie <laughs> with everything that's happening. Yeah. That's, that's the next topic on our discussion docket, which is why is everyone so cool with murder? Uh, well, it's everyone's not murder, though. No. Everyone thinks they might have accidentally killed Harry, Which but nobody intended is... to kill Harry. Yeah, it's right. But still. that's still kind of in a court of law. We might not be at murder yet. At All right, but but regardless, um, everyone at various points in this movie believes they killed him, and even when they believe they killed him, albeit accidentally they're still not very phased by it. Oh no. Everybody's just like, ah, oh, I might have killed a man. Or when they come across a body, it's just like, ah, there's a body. Like what was going on in the fifties? That was just so like, yeah, there's this body. You know, you come across a body. It's no big deal. It's like six year old kid comes across the body first. And he's just like, Oh, well, and then mom. what example <laughs> did she set when they go and look at the body and she's like, ah, it's Harry. Well, come now. Let's not think about this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> though, oh, though they thank later goodness. That's the end of this guy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, so for the listeners, what happens at the beginning of this movie is we have a wonderful old man that is out hunting. Uh, he is um, Captain Albert Wiles. Um, and he's out hunting and he's searching to shoot some rabbits and he does shoot a rabbit. We find out later on, but he doesn't find that out at the beginning. He believes that he shot Harry. Harry is found dead in the woods, uh, with a wound on his head. Um, first of all, not a gunshot wound as we learn later on, because then later another one of our wonderful characters, um, Miss Gravely thinks she killed Harry because Harry came on to her and she hit Harry with her shoe. And then later on, uh, Harry's wife finds him and she I don't know if she ever really thinks she killed him but she definitely hit, bonked him on the head and he ran away yeah I don't think she ever thought that she did the deed 
Right. So you uh, you have two people who are convinced they killed him at different parts of the movie. One person who bonked him on the head, told him to go away, and is not at all concerned at the fact that she is now dead. And what's great about all of this is that repeatedly they they come to these realizations that oh maybe I killed him. And it was like, yeah, should we still tell the police? Like <laughs> Is that oh really the gosh. best use of our time? Is that, is that the best thing to do with him? Hmm. So one it's, thing that's uh, one thing. I mean, people who know Hitchcock know that red was not a color that he used. You know, he was very careful in his use of the color red. Uh, and really, the only time I can really think of in this movie is when they first find the body, and it's just got this <laughs> the the movie blood of a of a. Uh, 1950s movie, but has it just has this bright red spot on his head that sticks out so well that tells you like it's like this man suffered some sort of trauma to the head, uh, and and that is why he died. But I just love that it's you know it's like ketchup red. It is so bright, sure. <laughs> right? And then he's and got those shoes that I I believe you would refer to as oxblood color. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Those, are, those are nice shoes. And I well, love turn out to be very important later. Yes, they yes. do. And I love that the, that the captain, who is the first person to believe that he's killed Harry when he shoots into the wilderness and later comes upon the dead body. I love that at no point does he. I, OK, I've never seen a gunshot wound in person. I would venture it probably looks very different than I got hit by a shoe. Well, so he was using, he's probably using a 22 caliber rifle, um, which little tiny little bullet. Yeah. Which aren't very big bullets. The, the 22s are probably some of the least likely to kill you. Um, if they hit you, you know, like in the body somewhere, like, uh, hit you in the head, it'll definitely still kill you. Um, but it wouldn't make a very big, like if you saw the holes that it was making in the, like the tin can and stuff in the sign. Like there's not, they're not very big. Yeah. That's a good point, I suppose. And if you're you're under real trauma, you'd be like, you you know, you would be not noticing those details. And yet the captain is so like, ah, this body that I have shot. Oh no. (laughs) And I, and I love that. I love that after he finds the body, of course, Miss Gravely comes along, which we later learn she comes along because she believed that she killed Harry and you know what you do when you find a nice old man that you might connect with and you're an old widow? Uh, you ask him out for blueberry cup, muffins. not blueberry cupcake, blueberry muffins, elderberry wine, elderberry wine. wine he hoped they would get to. They, yeah. It was still tea, I believe. Coffee. And, uh, yes. Or coffee, rather. And just ask him out while you two are discussing the dead over, body over, over a dead, dead body. body. That you both secretly believe you killed, or at least he openly believes he killed. Literally over Harry's dead body. Is this happening? (laughs) Yeah, that she was just so brazen, like, well, do you want to come over later and we'll have some coffee and blueberry muffins and maybe some elderberry wine? And wait a minute. You guys are painting her like she's like the the town harlot trying to draw in, you know, whatever. No, that's how I took it. No, but I it's like this gravely. The tone of their conversation. Being, yeah, but yeah. I mean, she's. I took her as being an old maid. Yeah, who's been friendly with Captain Wells for a while and is 
has finally worked up the courage to actually ask him to come over. No, she very clearly was like, do you want to come over and get in my bed and just get real weird with it? Like that's straight up what I heard. (laughs) I I don't think it is the courage though, necessarily to ask him out because she does it over Harry's body when she believes she killed Harry. I think that, Part of it is I need to ever been around a man you murdered or really the adrenaline just gets you going. No, but I think part of it, and she admits this later on, is that like she I think she feels the need to come clean to the captain and the need to tell the captain, like, hey, you didn't kill this guy, I did. Um, and that's I think in my opinion, that's one of the reasons she asks him over. Yeah, yeah, that also. But yeah, she she goes from like terrible secrets. <laughs> so I I find her character so funny because they go through great efforts at the beginning of this movie to just make her look kind of homely, and then uh, and then she gets a makeover, looks slightly less homely, and she's still one of those characters that I can't figure out if she's like thirty five or ninety, and at least the movie makes a joke on it too, right? She, the movie yes. like in the movie, um, Sam Marlowe played by John Forsyth is like. How old are you? She is so well. He asks, like, how old are you? 50? And she says, I'm 42. In real right. life, she was uh 50 at the time of filming. Okay, all right. And uh he gives her this makeover, and this is probably a good segue to talk about Sam. I argue I would argue Sam's probably the most laissez-faire about dead bodies. Of well, yeah, yeah, someone who had nothing to do with uh with the murder. Any of this. <laughs> He's just like, oh, a dead body. Let me sketch it. Right. Yeah. Let me sketch it. Let me create evidence. Let me involve myself with all of this murder through multiple people. It's like not Sam. a murder. Okay. <laughs> they think they believe it to be a murder. They do point. believe no, it to be a murder. No, this they movie don't. They don't believe it was a murder. Well, they, they believe be- they murdered him. Even in the movie, the captain no, is like, Ms. I'm a murderer. Miss Gravely thinks it was self-defense. She thinks she killed him with her shoe. And Captain Wiles thinks that he accidentally shot him while he was shooting at rabbits. Right, but he called himself a murderer. The only person you could possibly call a murderer is the the third person who thinks they have killed Harry, who clocks him upside the head. Look, this is not lawyer go round. Uh, (laughs) I'm not not here for the intricacies. but what was oh so Sam? Sam okay, I want to. Yeah, I just want to jump forward slightly, just real quick to the end of the movie when the the police officer is like the description the man gave me matches this picture perfectly. Uh uh-uh. uh uh uh-uh. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, <laughs> that's not how that works. Anyway, yeah, Sam is just super casual. Like, oh, here's this dead guy. I'm gonna draw him, and then I guess I'll help you bury him and dig him up and bury him again. Yeah, so the world Sam is living in in this movie is fascinating. Yes, because as Nicole put in our docket, he's he's quite forward for the 1950s. This is a man that does say, "I would like to paint you nude." Um, Gosh, what are all my? There's so many forward things he does in this movie. When he first like walks up and talk is talking to her in front of her house, he's very like he's very flirtatious and like yeah, yeah, very much so. All the way to the point that. All the way to the point, and, and now we're talking about Shirley MacLaine's character, um, Jenny, right? Is that her name? Mm-hmm. Uh, Jennifer 
Rogers, yes. Jennifer Rogers, okay. And the young uh, widow Rogers. Yes. <laughs> yes, the twice widowed. And this this was her breakout role. Um and in he, in, in, in movies. She in was, movies. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now he comes to her toward the end of this movie after he has helped everybody with their various uh escapades of digging and reburying this body. And it's just like, hey, time to get married. <laughs> and uh, very, very forward. And I typically hate that in movies. But there's something that's just so quaint and fun well, and kind of dumb about this movie that I love it. It's because it's because he is not living in reality. Because even later on, she's like, I've been thinking about your engagement. And he's like, oh, I forgot about that. Right. Uh, it, is, it is sort of tongue-in-cheek about the whole thing. And like, yeah, they, they still end up being engaged at the end, I guess. Yeah, does this marriage last? <laughs> uh, probably not. Or last for, I don't know. Sam's a weird guy, but it, <laughs> if it had, if it had, if it had been him, like, wow, you know, I met you and everything like, if it was super serious and like really cheesy and, and like hammed up, we'd, kind of be rolling our eyes and be like, yeah, okay, whatever. But just because he's like, you know, I met you and I think you're beautiful and uh, want to get married. It's like, I was thinking about it and I think, yes. He's like, oh, right. Yeah. I forgot. I said that I was going to do that. Sure. Let's do it. Uh, I, it makes it a little bit more like fun and it's kind of a play on those tropes of the time of these people who meet and then within the yeah. week or forever and madly in love sure it's 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 in it's the uh it's the it's a wonderful life thing that's that's a hard sentence to say um yeah i one thing i also find a little bit weird is that as we know jennifer is the the now widow of harry and throughout the movie she is just completely she does not care that her husband has died she never liked her husband she never wanted to marry him and she really paints him as a scummy dude and a horrible guy. We never but really find out why. She doesn't really. She yeah, just, she paints. She says Harry is horribly good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, is that it? Yeah. He yes. he is a guy who whose brother died, and he's like, well, now I have to marry his wife. According to the Bible, uh, I have to oh, marry right, his right. wife and take care yeah, of her. And okay. yeah, it's just like, he's just kind of, I guess, <laughs> kind of aggressively nice and maybe a little bit boring for her. She's just not that interested in him. But is he that aggressively nice when he then tracks her down and thinking that a different woman is her well, physically he got, assaults her? <laughs> he got bonked on the head at that point. The man was suffering brain damage, Brett. Oh God! <laughs> yeah, he he was wandering around. Yeah, he shows up because I probably because of some you know overdeveloped sense of duty. Right, that he I've needs to take go care find of his his wife and take care of her and his brother's child, and you know that it's it's only right that they live together and make their marriage work. And she clocks him. I think she says clocks him. She she clocks him over yep. the head with a milk bottle. And knocks him silly, as she puts it. So she's she's basically concussed him at yeah. least with this glass heavy. You know, this was back when milk bottles were made of heavy glass, mm-hmm. and clocks him with it. He wanders off into the woods, uh, all loopy, and then mistakes Miss Gravely for her, and assaults her. Basically, he drags Miss Gravely off into the bushes, 
And they Which, make it sound, you know, amusing the way that she describes it. But it's it's actually it would kind of frightening when you stop oh, yeah. and think. Oh, my God. Yeah. This, man, this man has been concussed and is not in his right mind. Yeah. And is insisting that he's, you know, if some guy came up to me in the woods insisting that he was married to me and was clearly not in his right mind and kept dragging me off into the bushes to try to have his way with me, I would be quite upset. And I would probably do what Miss Gravely does, which is take off her shoe oh. and clock him over the head with is, it. Is that not how I'm supposed to meet women? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. no, no. You have to at least introduce yourself properly before you drag her off into the bush. Oh, uh, okay. Give her, give her my full name. <laughs> That's okay. right. Give her your full name and address. And then she yeah. can. Perfect. Right. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> oh, boy. At Davla's. Uh, I don't do that. For the record, not here. I don't do that. Yeah. So uh, anyway, <laughs> um, one thing I also found very interesting is that to me, watching this movie really felt like it played out more like a play than a movie in many ways. Um, it only happens in a couple rooms and a couple spots, you know, when they keep reburying and unburying uh, Harry as they decide who they think killed Harry and they get guilty. And whether and or, not, whether or not they're going to tell the police or not. Yeah, all this stuff is happening in the same the same particular you know outdoor soundstage clearing. It's all happening in one or two houses. There is a um, there is an outdoor kiosk type place. There is a store that they go inside of two or three times. Um, you could totally do this as a play. It probably has been done as a yeah. play if I went and looked it up. And what I love about that is there's a lot of movies that can do that, especially play adaptions. We had this conversation similarly with Fences a while back that it can almost feel like you're in too tight of a box and you're not seeing enough. And for this particular medium, it's just not translating as well. And for this, and I know it wasn't originally a play, of course, it feels yeah. like a play. It was but, a short story, I believe. Great. So, so but it feels like a play, but works yeah. amazing as a movie. They use the devices of a live play and the setting of a live play in visual movie form and it, it works so well. I, this movie's not at all boring, even though it only happens in like four places. Well, I think that that sense of it being, you know, so sort of contained gives it a, a real kind of intimacy. You know, you only meet about eight people total in this movie and they all know each other and you really get the feel of like these tiny new England towns where everyone knows right. everyone else's business. Um, and you just usually one, one minds one's own as well. Um, you know, you know, everybody's business, but you don't usually go poking your nose into it. Um, so it's, it's more unusual for the, uh, more reserved New Englanders to do the sort of thing that Miss Gravely does, which is, you know, ask her neighbor over for blueberry muffins and coffee. Um, or, or go introduce yourself to the young widow in town and flirt with her outrageously. Um, but of course, you know, Sam is one of those outsider artist types, one of those, um, not quite beatnik, but sort of, you know, that there is this impression of you know, quote unquote artists in the fifties and they were off with their jazz cigarettes and, you know, poetry and their cool pants. I want his pants. I want that style of pants to come back in style. That's right. And they're, they're, you know, they're 
laissez-faire attitude about, well, I'll sell my art or I won't, but, you know, they'll just enjoy life in the meantime. And so it's just, I don't know. It's, I, I really like that sort of close sense you have. Sam is the agitator because he's the outsider and yet he's accepted by the people in the community. Look, um, his art's not very good, right? I'm not alone in this. I'm so no, glad you brought good. that up. It's so bad. <laughs> it's not it is enough. it is so bad. But there is a millionaire that passes through town who is very much into it. Yeah. And when they finally get that whole thing and it's like, what is what is, what is your what is your price? It's like, dude, what are you at? No, how do you make money? What where's your money coming from? Uh, the one visual gag that I, I laughed at uh, quite a bit was, let me buy half a pack of cigarettes. And she hands him the pack of cigarettes and he pulls out a pair of scissors and cuts the pack literally in half. Uh, <laughs> and it's like, I'll buy the other half from you tomorrow. Uh, which if you're somebody who can only afford to buy one half pack of cigarettes, you have a millionaire trying to you know buy your stuff, just sell one of them for a million. <laughs> Yeah, he, uh, he, there's this very weird scene and it's like, it's so, it's so, it's a wonderful hyphy to me. I, I, I mentioned that twice, but I, when he's no, sitting at the, the very end and he's like, what does everybody want? And, uh, they all, the very end. That's like the, the false ending of the movie. Yeah. Okay, like the oh, false yeah, ending of the, the movie. Thing still what they have to do with the sure. deputy. Sure, the deputy and the doctor and all that stuff. But yeah, he, you know, the, the millionaire, he won't take any of his money, but he will uh, take a variety of random knickknacks for people that are currently in the room. And uh, it's, it's cute. Yeah, he asks each person who's in the general store with him what they what they most want. And he arranges for the millionaire to bring it. He's like, you know, what do you he asks? Uh, Jennifer, you know, Ms. Rogers, what what do you what do you love? What do you enjoy? She's like strawberries i guess and so he gets her fresh strawberries every month and the store owner wants a new cash register that's chrome plated and you know each person gets like a wish list but item, i love uh I love, I love the uh the, when they ask the captain what he wants and he like lists some hunting stuff he's like ah the davy crockett yeah <laughs> now th- does anyone this this might be a hot take but uh, does anyone else feel that the way Shirley MacLaine's character is written makes her seem kind of empty-headed? No. Really? I don't think so at all. Yeah, I think it just makes her seem kind of, uh, you know, she's she's playing a little older than her actual age. She's playing like late 20s and she seems, still seems cynical and world-weary for her age. She's She's seen some stuff already. And so yeah. that's why she's just so casual about the body. And yeah, you know, every, everybody in this movie is just so casual. I think, I, I think, I mean, it kind of makes Sam, I felt like Sam kind of felt the same way of like a little bit empty headed, but it's like, these are just people who are just so like, nah. I don't know. I guess it's like, Hey, what do you need? Strawberries. <laughs> uh, she comes across a little basic to me in this movie. Oh, and, I don't know. Uh, I really like that scene because I'm watching it and I'm sitting there. I'm like, 
sneakers totally ripped this off. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, sneakers and all of its Hitchcock influence. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, mean, I don't mean the whole movie, but this particular scene, they they do the same exact thing at the end of the movie Sneakers, which came out in the 90s and I find delightful. Um, well, someone it's not a to. great movie, but I enjoy the heck out of it and I recommend it. Um, but anyway, so now, yeah, this wish list thing—it's—it's it's been done again. I'm sure, not just those two movies, but I mean, it is—they do it so nicely here. It's charming. Yeah, it is. It's a cute little scene. It's not just like I want you to pay her mortgage every single month, and like he's not—it's yeah, not about money for him. Right, he's not arranging for everybody's life to be perfect. He's just like, what right now? What do you want? What's coming to you in this moment that sounds good to you? Yeah, that's nice. Whereas in It's a Wonderful Life, he is literally organizing to pay their mortgages. Uh, I need to stop bringing that. I, I recently saw the movie. It's on the mind. I've in any case, seen it. Oh, yeah. He literally organizes to pay their mortgages at the end of the movie. That's like the whole crux of the movie. Yeah. Um, in oh, any goodness. case. What, sorry, what, Nicole? No. <laughs> All right, end of this year, I want us all to get on Rabbit and watch It's a Wonderful Life together because I cannot just sit here and keep correcting you. <laughs> I've seen that movie. Back, back when I was a kid, that movie was in public domain and I must have seen it like 40 times and I watched it at least <laughs> once a year now. Public, public domain is the only reason that movie still exists. Yeah, um, yes, no, I believe it's still that. Popular. I mean, no, yeah, yes. no, you're probably right. It's, it was a failure at the time. And it was only because somebody forgot to renew the copyright on it and it fell into public domain that it started getting played everywhere and suddenly became a popular thing. Yes. Huh. Well, anyway, yeah. it's my favorite movie in the whole wide world and I want us to watch it together next week. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> well, uh, some of the dialogue in this is a little Shakespeare-y. Uh, Shakespeare-y. Yeah, Shakespearean. Uh, Shakespearean, that's, that's so, the proper word for it. That goes, yeah, it goes along with the whole like things feeling like a play, especially in the Which beginning. dialogue? In the beginning, when yeah. the uh, the captain is observing the body, and uh, people are kind of coming and going, and he's just like saying stuff like, "Oh, what luck I'm having today," or like, "Oh well, who, yeah, like, who is coming up the path now?" It is just like like that is so Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, it is, yeah. Well, it's like not necessarily a bad thing, and like yeah, the, the movie doesn't do that so much as it goes on but just in that moment i was like this is just some real because that's also something we talk about doing in uh improv a lot which is like shakespeare made things very obvious and that's okay to do like in improv so i'm just like aware of it now when i see it in movies so you know you come on stage and you're like well as a dog you know saying stuff like that uh so in this word it's like oh well who is walking up the path it's like if you were hiding behind a tree trying to make sure nobody saw you with a dead body, you wouldn't be like, what luck am I having today? Yeah. Sure. And like and like popping up very deliberately out from behind the tree to oh, commentate on whoever is walking up, which is very actually that's literally a scene in Midsummer's, right? When they when they're walking by all the bodies as they're sleeping. Um yeah. and then also the opening scene of the movie when he is uh when he's talking about a man and his gun and his primal urge to kill, <laughs> um, which is an interesting way to segue into him thinking he accidentally killed a man. Uh, I think that was very much intentional. But uh, <laughs> let's also talk about the relative ages of couples in this movie and the layers of weirdness they add. As we've talked about, um, 
the captain is old and uh, Miss Gravely is less old. I mean, there's and, a 20, uh, 20 some odd year difference between them at time of filming. 28. Yeah. yeah. 28 year age difference. It would be like me dating a 74 year old. It just, it's a little. Ew. It doesn't seem than like there's a ton of options you know, in town. So let's start no, with that. It's true. <laughs> It does seem like a very, very small dating yeah, pool. They're, they're, they're a town of about 12 people. <laughs> right. And some of them are related to each other. This so, is true. Yeah. Uh, like the store owner is related to the deputy sheriff. Um, oh, the, right. That's right. That was him. Yeah. Yep. So, but I mean, it's, and then Shirley McLean is playing older, but she was only 21 when this movie was made and then John Forsyth was 37 at the time. And it's just, it it's, I don't know. I mean, I guess well, you can get away with it today. It's just, a, oh, it's a Hollywood tradition. It still happens. So really to have, yeah. to have a child of, of Arnie's age right. and Arnie is her, is her daughter and her, her, her son in this movie, as we had talked about, she really would have had to have her child at like 12. Cause he's like a 10 year old kid in this movie. Maybe not. He's not right. Seven, right. But she's, but she's playing long, older. Right. It's a long-standing Hollywood tradition to put, you know, older men with women who, in real life, would never date them. She'd be like, "Yeah, he's handsome and all, but he's twenty years older than me. We don't have a lot in common." Well, right. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, with him. Even more recently, Bradley. So Bradley Cooper's forty-four. Jennifer Lawrence is twenty-eight. And then take that down a few years ago when they were in Silver Linings Playbook. Right. Yeah, I mean it happens. Like, like I remember a, a recent revelation of mine was um, I won't name anybody. I, I have a I have a musician I love. I see him all the time when he comes to Chicago. Really big fan, and uh, he's got a great opener. And his opener is maybe thirty years younger than him. <laughs> and uh, I recently learned they're an item and live together. And uh, and and at first I was like, oh, that that's that's interesting. <laughs> and and then I saw them together and I'm like, oh no, they seem happy. Let let humans be human. Yeah. Well, they do what they do. Um so I mean like it happens, right? But but it, it this does. movie plays it pretty pretty smooth, I think, and all things considered. I don't think about yeah. it too much when I'm watching the movie. Yeah, but it happens way more in Hollywood than it does in real life. Oh my god, yeah. Oh so, yeah, no, hundred percent. And when it does but, happen in real life, you're like kind of like shell shocked by it, right? Like yeah, and I mean, Captain Wiles is being played younger than the actor actually was. I think he's being played as like maybe a 60-year-old man mm -hmm. um, by a, I have to say, a delightful Edmund Gwen, who is probably best known as playing Chris Kringle in Miracle on 34th Street. Oh, yes. he's so Santa-y. The he most hottie <laughs> Santa. Uh, the most handsome tugboat captain. That's right. Most <laughs> oh, that scene. <laughs> on the Hudson River. Or something yeah. like that. Oh, I love I love that confessionary scene where after a whole movie of talking about uh the various horrors he saw while his time in the service and all of it, you know, you know right from the beginning there's no way this stuff is true. I, oh and, when he uh, brings her, yeah, when he brings her into his house, which is a mess. And oh, then he has he has that 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 uh the I forget what it's called, the front part of the ship. Um and he's oh, like, he's figurehead. Yeah, yeah. The figurehead. He's like leaning on it, but it's like his, his elbow is just like on the boobs of the figure. <laughs> right. Yeah. He's, he's, he's drying his underwear, his long leggings on the, on the furnace. And 
whole place is kind of a mess. Mm-hmm. He's I love him. He's adorable. He's great. He's great. Yeah. No, Everyone and I also think what's wonderful job. I think. I also think what's funny about his character in particular is, that, uh, he he kind of does like. Uh, I was about to say he does the brunt of the work in terms of digging up and reburying Harry. But then I remember one of my favorite visual gags of the movie is when Miss Gravely says, we need to go dig him up because I killed him. You didn't kill him. I want to go to the police. I need to see this body again. So um, we cut to a scene of him being dug up and you see the shovel in the ground and the dirt being flung up and you just assume it's him. Right. And then it just, slowly pans to the left and no. he's like smoking a cigarette by the tree no <laughs> see that that's that's a gag I, I i knew what it was but it was still amusing because of how they'd done it earlier when he was out there with sam uh he wasn't digging uh but it was still it was still a great gag uh, oh it's a great gag he does a lot of it though he does dig like he does end up digging <laughs> Especially well, yeah, when, when he, he realizes he's killed like, a man. Yeah, when he realizes, wait a minute, I didn't kill him. Let's get this body out of here. Him, rather, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because for the timeline for folks that haven't seen the movie, essentially what happens is he first gets buried by uh, Sam and the captain because they believe the captain killed him. Uh, then he gets unburied so the captain can check to see whether or not he really killed him. Upon inspection, they find out it's not a bullet wound, but rather some sort of blunt instrument trauma. Then they rebury him because they're like, oh, well, now I know I didn't kill him. My conscience is clear. I'd also don't have a conscience. Weird segue there for the captain. Uh, then they bring him back up again when Miss Gravely decides she needs to see the body. Then they rebury again, I believe, after... They stop and think about what would happen uh, if people started investigating Jennifer Rogers. Sure. And then they rebury, I mean, they unbury the body again after that. Their plan is to clean it up and then put it out to be discovered again. Right. And and the the, the catalyst for that is, uh, you know, Jennifer and Sam cannot get married if her husband is just like not around, like they, I th- and they, and they made some sort of comment in there. Like you have to wait seven years apparently until your spouse is assumed Absolutely. dead. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, so they, they have to have a body. Right. And, and it's very weird because the way they go about staging his like fake slash real death is they put the body back out. The doctor stumbles upon it who has previously stumbled upon it quite literally several times. And uh, he then is not, he's also not too concerned with the body outside and all these people are just around it next to a hole. Everyone is disconnected from reality except for uh, the sheriff's deputy who's just incompetent enough to, uh, or the deputy sheriff, I should say. He's just incompetent enough to not really do anything about the whole thing. But yeah, the the and the and they and they sit down and they lay everything out to the doctor, and the doctor is just like, "I'm out of here. Like, forget this. I'm not dealing with your people's crap." Yeah, but the doctor does like show up though at the very end, and that's when we come to the realization after they've put the body in the bathtub, and uh, he comes and finds the body and says, "No, he he had a he had a stroke. So, or was it a stroke or was it seizure? It was a seizure." It was a seizure. Some sort of natural cause. Yeah, it was a seizure, I believe. He had like a brain seizure or something, they say. So none of them ended up killing him. I don't think we've actually mentioned that yet. Uh, but yeah, the deputy's kind of all on top of it and not doing a super great job. 
<laughs> um, okay. No, he's not. He kind of reminds me of Barney Fife, like <laughs> in uh in what's it, in the Andy Griffith show. Golly. Uh, yeah. The way that Sam edits that picture on the fly is oh. so insane. Like he makes the eyes open. Yeah. <laughs> what? Well, uh, because the deputy sheriff was like, well, you know, you you look at him and he's just, it's, that guy's clearly not sleeping. He's dead. You know, right. Yeah. His closed, eyes are closed. He's clearly a dead And it, Sam's like, oh, really? Let me take a closer look at that. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it it matches this to it. I'm okay. All right, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. But I was (laughs) right. Well, there's there's actually one more person who's connected to reality, and that's uh, Jennifer Rogers' son Arnie, uh, who is actually the first person to discover the body. What Arnie's in his own reality of where today is tomorrow, and tomorrow is yesterday. It's true. <laughs> he trades a rabbit for a frog and then takes that rabbit back to go do more trades. Yeah. Yes. And, but he gets to complete kid, the trades. This kid is a trades. con artist. Yeah. Well, he gets two blueberry <laughs> Little Billy, true. Billy McFarlane here. Um, no, yeah, no, he, no. No, I'm joking. He then so trades our, yeah. for blueberry muffins. Yeah. Yeah. It was going to yeah. be oh, one a, blueberry a, muffin, muffin, but then he's a two says, muffin rabbit. That's right. It's a two muffin rabbit. <laughs> So they give him two blueberry muffins. The so kids, the away. kid's good. The kid's good. The kid is good. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he's adorable. You, he is very, yeah. very cute. And I mean, that's that's Jerry Mathers, who later plays the Beaver in Leave It to Beaver. Yes. Oh, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, would you have wanted Hitchcock to make more outright comedies, or is it better that his puckish humor is sprinkled throughout his work? A question from Nicole. After I, seeing this, I, I think it could be fun to if if he had explored a little bit more of this side of himself. I I I I I'd get a kick out of it. Yeah, I think I think a couple of more comedies would have been nice. Um, but I think that he was such a master at the suspenseful storytelling. He was and there's a couple of shots in here that I'm like, oh, that is straight up Hitchcock. Uh like when um the captain is sleeping and there's the shadow of the feet. Uh, kind of like dangling by his head is just like a, such a classic Hitchcock sort of shot. Um, the framing of uh, of the 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 son whose name escapes me now, uh, Arnie. Arnie, like standing there, like when the two feet are on either side of him, like framing him, uh, is such just like a really just such a great shot. Um, I don't know. He's just he was such a master at what he did that it's kind of hard to be like, oh, well, I wish he'd done more comedy. It's like, but would that have yeah. mean we wouldn't have had, you know, other stuff? One oh, thing I, I mean, did... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Nicole. Oh, sorry. His his characters are so often quippy. I mean, he had this yeah. same screenwriter for Rear Window and Catch the Thief. Ugh, Rear um, Window. Rear Window is great. I love it. Oh yeah, Ruin is fantastic. It's it's, it's also very surpassed. quippy though. Yeah. Also, yes. and it's it surpassed Vertigo in my mind. Oh, it's no. not as dynamic, but I think I I like it a lot more. I think it's much more uh, much tighter. I should not have clicked on that. I've I'm going down a Leave It to Beaver rabbit hole. Did you know there was a, <laughs> a sequel series, the new Leave It to Beaver, that ran from 1983 yeah. to 1989, a hundred episodes of t- what? What anyway? <laughs> back to this movie. <laughs> so yeah, 
Hitchcock in his comedies. Um, one th- no, one, thing, right, I was, yes. one thing I was very excited about with Hitchcock is I went into this movie and one of the first things I said to myself is, find the Hitchcock. <laughs> and I found him the first time through. I was, I was very proud of that. He was he walks by uh, when we first see the millionaire and he's looking at the paintings for the first time and he can't flag anybody to um, to purchase one of the paintings. In fact, Sam cares so little to sell his paintings that when the man tries to flag him, he's more interested in grabbing scissors to go give uh, Miss Gravely a, a makeover. And uh, and Hitchcock walk, walks right by in the background. He's very distinctive, like his like portly little body. Um <laughs> There's no missing that profile. No missing them. Uh, so I was happy with that. And then also our final discussion topic. Uh, the film was an experiment of sorts to see how a non-star driven movie could go over with audiences as Hitchcock felt that star power could detract from the narrative. Do you agree with this? Why? Why not? Uh, one thing I want to throw out here really quick for myself and I'll pass it to you guys is I have trouble answering this because not being of this era I don't know what strikes me as star power. Um, like I know when I see Jimmy Stewart in his movies, it doesn't like phase me out of them in any way, but certainly I feel like nowadays I'd be able to have a better handle over like if an, if a director's making a movie and they just decide like throw Johnny Depp in the middle of it at the very end of it to complete the story. Does that cut you out of that incredibly stupid movie? <laughs> and yeah, it did. It really yeah. did. Uh, uh, I can't even bit, remember but, the name of that I mean, movie. But I mean, think about it in the same way of like Jim Carrey being the comedy guy. Uh, it was also Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Jim Carrey being the comedy guy is like Jim Carrey's the comedy. No, not Jim Fantastic Car- Beasts. The uh... oh, I understand oh. what you're saying. You're talking. I'm talking oh, about sorry, the movie we watched. Same, wow, same problem with both of those movies. Uh, <laughs> too much Johnny Depp. Anyway. But Jim Carrey's the funny guy, right? Jim Carrey's always known for being funny. He is you. The movies you saw him in forever were funny movies, and then suddenly started putting out serious movies. And everybody's reaction, even in like this day and age, is like, "Well, Jim Carrey's the funny guy," you know. So it's like you have this expectation of who he is. Like that's how still it wouldn't have been. You know, we don't have this look into their lives so much as we do, except for like the fan traits and stuff. It was a weird, different time. But you would see like. You know, you would see Cary Grant and have a certain expectation of Cary Grant, of the kind of movie, of the kind of man he was going to be in that movie. Uh, and Hitchcock just thought like that was hindering too much of like of the flow of stories because it was people had these expectations. They weren't seeing the character; they were seeing the actor. Which I think still, I think still today also can still be an issue because there are times where I'm like, I know you're playing a character, but eh, you're Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't seen enough of his movies to to give a diversity, but I mean, he's got he worked with Jimmy Stewart a bunch of times. He worked with Cary Grant a bunch of times, both before and after this movie. Um, so I mean, he must have had some willingness, anyway, to continue working with star power. Uh, but I do think that this is it's nice to have an ensemble once in a while that doesn't have a big star because then the story takes the focus rather than the actors. I wonder, Mm -hmm. I wonder if the key to this is something that David mentioned, which is, um, you know, when you see Jim Carrey doing something serious, you say, ah, but that's Jim Carrey. He's the funny guy. Maybe the issue then to pull you out of a movie with a recognizable actor 
is if they're doing something that you just don't expect them to be doing. Like there's never really a Jimmy Stewart movie um, where he's going too far out of like, oh, that's George Bailey. Oh, oh that's, that's being Mr. Smith. Um, you need to see some of his Westerns that he did. Like Winchester Yeah, that, that's 70. true. But I guess what I'm saying is like, I think maybe if he had cast somebody in this movie to perform a role that they're, that, that is famous, that is completely outside of the biome of things that they are known for, then I think he would have run into that issue. I don't know if he would have run into it otherwise. I think the other way to do it is the Tommy Maitland. Them. I, I think maybe he had somebody in mind. I think I, maybe that's, maybe that's why he says that maybe there was somebody that Hitchcock wanted to cast in this movie and then stepped back and said, would that ruin it? I'd be very curious to know that. For everybody who doesn't know what I mean, Tommy Maitland is the fake character played by Mike Myers on the the new Gong show that he's currently on. Which is like, just put, well, let's say what they did with uh, with, with, uh, Tola Swinton in the the new Suspiria, right? It's the old man that has never been in a movie before. We're going to create a whole entire backstory for him. (laughs) Yeah. But if you knew that was Tilda Swinton, though, wouldn't you? I mean, it came out before the movie, which is kind of unfortunate. But I get what they were doing because once you know that's Tilda Swinton, you're watching those scenes being like, oh, that's an old man, but it's Tilda Swinton. Now, see, I didn't actually know that. But, you know, in the, in the new Suspiria, Tilda Swinton plays three roles, and I knew about two of them. I did mm-hmm. not know about the third one. I knew that. Oh, I don't know about the third either. Don't mention the third. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, don't ruin that for me. I, ju- I just stopped you because I'm watching it this weekend and I don't want none of those spoilers. If she's in there a third time, I don't want to know by who. Okay, well, in any case, I didn't know. And I knew I knew that something was up with that character because the makeup looked a little strange to me. I'm like, who? I don't, what's, what is going on with that person? That's not who I, there's something up and I'm not sure what it is. She's a chameleon. But they're doing a good job. So I'm just going to let it go and roll with it and work with the performance, which is what I did. I just sort of relaxed and, and watched what the person doing the role was, how what they were doing. And it was, I thought it was quite well done. Not strictly necessary to the plot, maybe. <laughs> um, Don't think so. Yes, yeah, the new Suspiria is very long, but I like it. Um, anyway. So just throwing this out there. Just throwing this going? out there as long as we're there. Um, <laughs> if if oh, uh, Kate Blanchett, if Kate Blanchett, as we've discovered in this show, um, can pull off a convincing Bob Dylan, then I think Tilda Swinton needs to be able to get a crack at Bowie before anybody else. Just imagine her as Bowie. Mm-hmm. It oh, would sure. work. It would totally no, she's work. From the same planet, clearly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She hasn't she hasn't been called back yet, like David Bowie was. That's right, exactly. So, so as we wrap up this show, uh, let's let's actually turn before we turn to Nicole for her rounding off thoughts. I'd like to turn to David and then myself as people who saw this for the first time. David, are you happy that that Nicole introduced us to this? What were your thoughts on it? Is this something you'll revisit? Yeah, it's it's great because I would love to see more Hitchcock, um, but don't, you know, outside of the really popular ones, don't really know which way is the best way to go. And this was a, a great movie that I probably wouldn't have been anywhere near the top of my list uh, of going towards. And I'm super happy that I saw it. I think it's a great movie. I think, uh, I think it's a movie that 
you know, not every movie from back then I think will play well with general audiences of today. Um, but this is one that I think that I would feel comfortable recommending to most people to watch and, and to see. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a great movie. I totally agree. Uh, this was something that just was like butter to me watching. It was just so smooth and easy. I mean, we I was also coming from stuff like Rain of Fire that I struggled through more than you guys. <laughs> um, but it's just really nice to get a movie I've never heard about and go into it and especially an older film and just have it be so smooth and so great to watch and just hold up so well. And I feel like that is the hallmark of an, of an ideal vintage, you know, classic film that I can watch it today and just be as invigorated in it or by it as, as a, you know, as someone who saw it in 1955. That That's the same way I felt about The Magnificent Seven when we watched that. I couldn't believe that that movie was as old as it was because it was just feeling so fresh and new to me. So I loved it. Super excited I saw it. I am bummed I didn't buy it. Nicole warned me about this. Um, I spent four I bucks know, to rent it when I could have spent $9 to buy it. So you've been double warned now, audience. That's right. <laughs> uh, if you want to watch this, it's just worth owning because I could totally see myself pulling this out and rewatching it. Yeah, uh, no, Nicole, Nicole put a, a pretty great thing on it. If you go onto Amazon, look up Alfred Hitchcock, the masterpiece collection. It is 15 of his movies on Blu-ray, $60. I'm considering buying it because that's a good deal. It's a really good deal. Is this in it? It is. It is. That's a really good deal. Yeah, it's a really good deal. (laughs) Oh man. All right. Link in the show notes, Nicole. um, Any closing thoughts before we end this episode? Um, I I guess you've made me think that, you know, especially going back and looking at old movies that you're, it's really where you discover why the great directors are great because you'll go back and you'll look at their work and it's going to feel fresh. You're going to feel like you're in, you'll be able to relax and it be like butter because you're, you're relaxing into good hands. You know that they are masters of their craft and nearly anything you watch, you know, back then from, Alfred Hitchcock or Preston Sturges or Frank Capra, you know, you're going to get something out of it because it's going to be incredibly well made and you can at least relax into knowing that this is going to be entertaining. So, yeah, absolutely. Hitchcock, highly recommended. He's, Hitchcock has had some missteps, um, you know, especially some of his very late things uh, are not that fabulous i from what i understand frenzy's not that great i've seen torn curtain that's okay um i haven't seen family plot which is his other comedy and his last movie his last movie yeah well um, they can't all be winners no no i mean when you make 70 they can't all be masterpieces you know but he's got some great things and it, this this won't be the last hitchcock we look at i'm gonna go find something else good maybe we'll do like the 39 steps at some point or something um be cool but anyway so yes i'm very glad i was able to show you guys something new uh from a master and that you both really enjoyed it and i hope that we can do that again sometime man audience i would hate to watch rear window wouldn't that <laughs> suck guys 
Oh, be the worst. Oh, they better not make it happen. So boring. Don't do it. Uh, You did this to us in four weeks. All righty. Let's deal with Jimmy Stewart and, you know, Grace Kelly, the most beautiful woman (laughs) on the planet, possibly ever. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, that's going to do it for myself, David and Nicole. Next week, we're going to be watching Zoom, the 2015 movie on Netflix. Nicole, where can people find you online? What are you up to? Uh, I tweet under your word whiz, Y-O-U-R-W-O-R-D-W-H-I-Z. I put stuff up on Letterboxd under Nicole underscore Davis, uh, including every movie that we have watched on Movie Go Round. And I work on our Movie Go Round Facebook page, facebook.com slash Movie Go Round podcast. That's where we put up every new episode. We put up our polls to vote on for You Did This to Us, where you can add things like Rear Window or Psycho <laughs> or, um, I don't know, The Burbs. So. <laughs> I was recently watching one of our last shows where uh, we did the same thing. We're like, man, wouldn't we hate to watch High Fidelity? Don't make us watch High Fidelity. <laughs> Please, no. You can throw that in there, too. Very good. We'll definitely be there. Um, As Nicole said, that's the place where you're going to be able to find those polls and on Twitter at MovieGoRoundPod. David, where can people find you? Uh, You can find me on the Brokeback Mountain podcast and around the internet under the username DavLuz. That is D-A-V-L-U-Z. So Twitter and Instagram, you can find me there. Right on. My name is Brett Stewart. You can find me at I am Brett Stewart on Twitter. That is Brett with two T's and Stewart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T. We don't have time for any of those S-T-U's. What were they thinking? (laughs) Oh, goodness. And of course, you can find all my stuff on brettdavidstewart.com. I have some new stuff that I'm working on. It'll be out there in the public by the time this episode comes out. So check there and I'll be able to explain a little bit more about what that is. brettdavidstewart.com. Next week is going to be Zoom for Netflix Roulette. We'll see you then. (laughs) 